Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings. This is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, uh, November the 20th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll feature dispatches on the concluding debates and resolutions passed at the United Nations Climate Conference, COP27, that was held uh, in Egypt uh, over the last two weeks. South Africa has become a focal point on the challenges facing countries seeking to convert to cleaner forms of energy generation. Equatorial Guinea, uh, President Teodoro Obiang, is commemorating the 43 years in power in the oil-rich state. And uh, Tunisia has hosted a summit of Francophone countries from around the world. In the second hour, we look deeper into the outcomes of the COP27 climate gathering in Sharm el-Sheikh. Finally, we listen to interviews with leading African National Congress of South Africa officials on the upcoming National Elective Conference uh, scheduled for next month to uh, select new leaders of the ruling party in South Africa. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, South Africa's Brenda Fossey. Uh, Let's listen in. Composing, you know, I'm telling you, 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 I'
Brutality, brutality. 
Welcome back. And uh, that was a collection of tracks uh, from the legendary uh, Brenda Fossey from the Republic of South Africa. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, uh, November the 20th, 2022. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire uh, related uh, to the concluding uh, sessions of the United Nations Climate Conference, or COP27, being held in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Uh, for the first time, the nations of the world decided to help pay for the damage an overheating world is inflicting on poor countries. Uh, but they finished marathon climate talks earlier today without further addressing the root cause of those disasters, the burn of fossil fuels. The deal uh, gaveled around dawn in this Egyptian Red Sea Resort city established a fund for what negotiators call loss and damage. It was a big win uh, for developing nations, uh, which have long called for resources sometimes viewed as reparations because they are often the victims of climate worsened floods, drought, heat, waves, famines, and storms, despite having contributed little to the pollution uh, that heats up the globe. It has also uh, long been called for an issue of equity for nations hit by weather extremes and small island states that face an existential threat from rising seas. Three long decades, and we have finally delivered climate justice to Paul Panu, uh, the finance minister of Tuvalu. We have finally responded to the call of hundreds of millions of people across the world to help them address loss and damage. Pakistan's environmental minister, Sherry Rima, said the establishment of the fund is not about dispensing charity. It is clearly a down payment on the longer investment in our joint future, she said, speaking for a coalition of the world's poorest nations. Antigua, Barbuda, uh, Moen, Joseph, who chairs the Organization of Small Island States, described the agreement as a win uh, for our entire world. We have shown those uh, who have felt neglected <clears throat> that we hear you, we see you, and we are giving you the respect and care you deserve, he said. The deal followed a game of chicken, with nations that supported the fund also signaling they would walk away if there was any backsliding or language on the need to slash greenhouse gas emissions. Early uh, Sunday morning, uh, delegates approved the compensation fund, but had not dealt uh, with the contentious issues of an overall temperature goal, emissions cutting, and desire to target all fossil fuels for phase-downs. Through the wee hours of the night, uh, the European Union and other nations fought back what they considered backsliding in the Egyptian presidency's overarching cover agreement and threatened to scuttle, to scuttle the rest of the process. The package was revised again, removing most of the elements Europeans had objected to, but adding none of the heightened ambitions uh, they were hoping for. Uh, what we have in front of us is not enough of a step forward for people and planet. A disappointed Franz Timmermans, executive vice president of the European Union, told his fellow negotiators, it does not bring enough added efforts for major emitters to increase and accelerate their emissions cuts. We have all fallen short in action to avoid and minimize loss and damage. 
Timmermans said that we should have done uh, much more. Germany's Foreign Minister Annalena Barbach uh, likewise voiced frustration. It is more than frustrating to see overdue steps on mitigation, phase-out of fossil energies being stonewalled by a number of large emitters and oil producers. And uh, in South Africa, living in the shadow of one of South Africa's largest coal-fired power stations, residents of Masakani fear job losses if the facility is closed as the country moves to cleaner energy. A significant polluter because it relies on coal to generate about 80% of its electricity, South Africa plans to reduce that to 59% by the end of the decade uh, by phasing out some of its 15 coal-fired power stations and increasing its use of renewable energy. Its target is zero carbon emissions by 2050. After receiving pledges of $8.5 billion at last year's Global Climate Summit in Scotland, South Africa plans uh, to transition away from coal was widely endorsed uh, by the COP27 climate conference in Egypt, where officials signed agreements for some parts of the loan funding. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. In Equatorial Guinea, President Teodoro Obiang Nguema M. Basogo, uh, Africa's longest-serving ruler, was poised earlier today to extend his 43 years in power in the oil-rich country amid accusations of voting irregularities from the opposition. In previous elections, Obiang had never gotten less than 90% of the vote, and one of the two opposition candidates said earlier today that the ruling party appeared to be again committing electoral fraud. Andres uh, Isono told journalists that his party had been receiving complaints all day from the, across the Central African nation, with many voters saying they were forced to cast ballots publicly rather than in secret. What he is doing is massive fraud, even worse than on previous occasions, Isono said of the 80-year-old incumbent. Isono uh, was one of the only two candidates running against Obiang in today's election, uh, 14 of the country's opposition parties joined an alliance with the authoritarian uh, government, which critics have long accused of intimidation, torture, and corruption. The incumbent president expressed optimism about the election's outcome after voting alongside his wife, Constancia Mangui de Obiang. And finally, in the North African state of Tunisia, leaders of French-speaking gathered uh, yesterday on a Tunisian island to discuss debt relief, migration, food, and energy shortages amid a soaring cost of living crisis across Africa. Europe and the Middle East, due to the Western sanctions imposed on Moscow to wage an economic war in response to Russia's special military operation in Ukraine. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and the presidents of eight African nations were attending the 18th biannual meeting of the 88-member International Organization of Francophonie, which promotes relations among nations that use French as their primary language. European Council President Charles Michel uh, also was in Tunisia for the two-day summit, the organization's first gathering in three years following the pandemic lockdown. Luis uh, Musha Kiwakwabo, 
Uh, the group secretary general and Rwanda's former foreign minister said the participants plan to issue a final declaration on major political, social, economic, and other issues after the summit ends uh, later today. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Journal so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go uh, to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, November 20th, 2022, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the music of uh, Detroit's own uh, Anita Baker mm-hmm. with the tune entitled Rules. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, and uh, I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, November 20th, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal this special worldwide radio broadcast. And as we reported earlier, the uh, United Nations uh, Climate Conference has just ended in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Let's listen to a report that tries to uh, sum up some of the developments uh, surrounding uh, COP27. China Global Television Network. Studies show that climate change has had a huge and destructive impact over large parts of Africa in the last few decades. Seasons have become increasingly unpredictable. Floods now alternate with prolonged periods of drought. Even the rare cyclone has become a common occurrence. The UN Climate Change Conference, COP27, held in Egypt's Red Sea port city of Sharm el-Sheikh, presented delegates with yet another opportunity to chart a path out of the global climate crisis. Now this week on the program, we look at what Africa put on the table at COP27, recap discussions around key issues of concern to the continent, and project what lies ahead post Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, Africa went to COP27 with a clear agenda. Similarly, it expected clear outcomes. Before we begin our discussion, let's take a look at how some of the discussions unfolded and how Africa fared. TGTN's Adel Mahrui sat down with Professor Lee White, the Minister of Forests, Oceans, Environment and Climate Change of the Gabonese Republic, to find out more. Mr. Minister, thank you very much uh, for being with us on Talk Africa. Um, COP27 has brought back the attention to Africa as it comes to the continent that is most uh, vulnerable. And when we talk about financing and, and funds, many years ago Africa was promised about 100 billion and now with the expectations of more uh, rise in temperature and the implications we've seen this year of extreme weather, these numbers are growing tremendously and the commitments have not been there. Have you seen any indications in this COP that will point that Africa, at a certain point, will be getting what it has been promised? There are two problems there. The, the 100 billion is for developing nations, so the 152 developing nations, of which 54 are in Africa. So one would expect about a third of that money to be coming to Africa, and actually probably proportionately slightly more, because we're the continent the worst impacted. And so, so maybe you'd expect 40, 45, 50% to come to Africa. So let's say that's 50 billion. Well, the developed nations claim that last year they mobilized 82. It should have been 100, it was only 82. But unfortunately, within that 82, there's a lot of, there's a lot of loans 
and, and commercial loans. So, so, so uh, or concessional loans. But, but when you look at what is actually hitting the ground, uh, Gabon is a average-sized African country. Um, would expect to be seeing two, three, four hundred million dollars per year now in, in climate resilience projects and in, 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 uh, you know, payment for our reduced emissions through the Red Plus process and so on. And I'm only seeing you know, five or ten million. And, and so there's a significant problem with delivery on the hundred billion and transparency on the hundred billion. Who has put how much, in what form? Is it is it con, you know, concessional loans? Is it is it commercial loans? You know, it really, it shouldn't be loans. We shouldn't have to borrow money and indebt our countries to get out of this problem. The idea of the hundred billion was that the developed world, recognising that it had created the problem, should be putting a you know, hundred billion of of money that can be dispersed to developing nations to deal with adaptation. Um, loss and damage, mitigation, and so on. So how much have they actually mobilized? How much of that is, is in the form of, of, of money that will be gifted to countries rather than loaned to countries? Um, why, w when we look at how much money was mobilized for COVID, for example, which was an immediate threat, why, when we can mobilize trillions for COVID, can we not even honor that 100 billion that was committed in Copenhagen 13, 14 years ago. Um, and at least in our case, really is still not hitting the ground. Um, I don't see that money. And that has created frustrations among some African nations. We've seen um, in this COP, African countries coming out boldly saying that they will object to any restrictions for them tapping into their own oil and gas reserves or exportation as that is essential for a continent that has huge um, energy poverty, it has huge issues in terms of economic growth, and they believe that restricting access to oil and gas will hinder economic growth in general. How have you seen that stand? Gabon is an oil producer. Um, we actually, but we're also a, a country, one of the few countries that absorbs more CO2 than we emit, so we're positive. Um, and so we actually offset all of our oil emissions. Actually, I mean, it's a very complex problem because because of climate change, the demand for oil is going to decrease. And because oil projects tend to have such a long lifespan, any exploration that we're doing today is going to result in production in five, ten years um, with fields that, that, that need to be economically active for, for 20, 30 years. And the reality is the world's not going to be buying oil in 20, 30 years' time. You know, the, the, the oil economy is going to reduce, whether we want it to or not. So, so as Gabon, we're looking at how do we adapt economically to this, this, this future where our oil will not be selling. We can pump as much as we want, but if nobody's buying it... Um, and so I think some of these debates about uh, exploring new oil fields in Africa. You know, it's a principal debate and it's an indication of how much frustration there is that developed nations are not delivering on, the, on their commitments, their, 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 their contract 
with developing nations to, to provide funding and, and, to, and to fund the just energy transition. Yeah. In Gabon, we're, we're taking commercial loans to fund renewable energy. That's not how it's meant to work. There's meant to be concessional funding at the very least uh, through this process to fund our, our, our just energy, energy transition. You know, when it comes to this idea that we should be free to produce as much oil as we want because the developed nations have already had their share, if you want, of the carbon space, that becomes a little bit problematic for Africa because we're the continent that will suffer the most. So if we start emitting CO2, more and more CO2, even though you can argue it's our right, for every ton of carbon dioxide we emit, we risk putting Africans at, at risk. Yeah. And so it's a catch-22. We need, some countries feel that they need the oil to develop, but by exporting, by producing that oil, they're going to be resulting in, in other Africans suffering. And so that's one of the really difficult problems we have to grapple with here at, here at, at the negotiations. Into, into the green energy transition. So how is that going and how has COP27 dealt with accelerating Africa's green transition into new energy? I would say that the, the green transition is really picking up speed. Um, in Glasgow, there were maybe one or two or three side events on, on green hydrogen. Here, there are 25, 30 side events on green hydrogen. So we see the world really picking up and, and starting to invest in, in green energy. We see green energy becoming actually a cheaper form of energy in, in many places. But we're not seeing the investment in Africa. We're not seeing you know, the funding becoming available for that just transition in Africa. Is someone trying to highlight issues like having the loss and damage on the agenda or um, establishing um, UN, UNEP and UNFCC um, going for a five-year plan um, to accelerate um, green technologies in developing countries, stuff like that. I mean, are these things that are concrete to you or you need to see more actionable decisions? I need to see action on the ground to be convinced. Loss and damage, it took us 26 years to get it on the agenda. So yes, it's, it's, it's a good thing that we're talking about it, but we're only talking about it. And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of inertia there. Uh, so, so the impression is that, that many developed nations would be perfectly happy to talk about it for another 10 years, whereas there are countries that desperately need. You know, there, there are 33 million people in Pakistan underwater. There are 22 million people in the Horn of Africa who are dying of, of, because of a, a very severe drought. Um, loss and damage is real and is happening today and is a life and death uh, situation. It's, you know, small islands are seeing entire economies wiped out in one night. Um, and so loss and damage is real and it needs to it needs to, there needs to be a fund and it needs to be being, paying money out tomorrow, not in 10 years' time. Um, it's great to be focusing on, 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 on this energy transition and, and initiating new five-year plans, but why is it not working right now? 
Why, why in Gabon do we struggle to fund our hydroelectric pro projects and our solar projects? It should be easy. It should be the easiest part of this negotiation because electricity projects are profit-making. You, if, if you invest in green energy in Africa, you actually make profits. But even in that profit-making sector, we're not making the transition fast enough. So, so yeah, there may be some positive indications, some good ideas, but I really want to see action on the ground. Thank you very much, Mr. Minister, for giving us um, your time and Talk Africa. Thank, Thank you. you. Right, very interesting discussions there. Well, we are going to take a short break now, and when we come back, we will deconstruct some of the discussions of interest at COP27 and find out what these mean for Africa. To stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Before the break, we heard from Professor Lee White, Minister of Forests, Oceans, Environment and Climate Change of the Gabonese Republic. Let's now delve deeper into the key issues for Africa at COP27. And joining me from Nairobi, Guleid Atan, Director of the IGAD Climate Prediction and Application Center. And joining us from Lagos, John Ekoko, Climate and Environmental Expert. Gentlemen, welcome uh, to the program. John, if I may start off with you, because in his address, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated that the world is on a highway to climate hell. He also spoke about a key target to stop global temperatures being under threat. Is the 1.5 degree goal likely to slip? The goal of 1.5 um, degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels it's not looking likely today. One, there is still a lot of carbon being released into the air by the developed countries, much more than the developing countries. Two, um, Africa, particularly the less developed countries, when they went to COP27, they went with a few priorities. Right. One was looking at the climate impact itself. And they were looking at adaptation, they were looking at loss, they were looking at the damage caused by climate change. The next one is looking at mitigation. The third one is looking at the finance, technology, and capacity building to allow Africa to be able to respond. All of this were supposed to give Africa an enough capacity to be able to respond to the climate challenge. John, you've talked about Africa pushing for certain actions to be done at COP27. What are some of those actions exactly? And what can you tell us uh, more so about the standoff that has pitted rich nations against the poor ones? Africa has been pushing for adaptation for support to adapt 
to the effect of the climate change. And part of it is looking at our vulnerabilities, looking at our resources, looking at our capacity, looking at our technology, and of course, finance itself. You are aware that in uh, COP25, $100 billion annually was supposed to be put together, principally to assist Africa up to 2025, or the developing world. However, the money has not been gathered up till now. And there is a talk of increasing to $150 billion up to that 2025 right. to make resources available for Africa to be able to respond. Let me bring in Guled in here. Guled, this year's climate summit was expected to finally be the African COP. We've heard um, John's uh, frustrations there over, the, over what is coming out of uh, the climate conference. Now, the African COP was supposed to put the needs of the continent front and center. In your view, though, did this happen? It, it, did, it happened, but it didn't happen as much we wish it. Uh, the African countries uh, put uh, their perspective on, on the climate change on the, on the agenda and as the UN Secretary General said and you repeated uh, we are on the highway to hell with our foot on the accelerator actually this region is closer to hell than any other region uh, by the way we are over already 1.5 in this region degrees above pre-industrial uh, levels. What Africa actually had mainly uh, the, the biggest thing on the agenda was to put on the agenda the loss and damage agenda and this is the first time it happened. It is on the agenda but uh, Africa has some successes. Also uh, one another item agenda on the African uh, country's uh, uh, position was to advocate uh, more support for adaptation. Till now, uh, most of the climate funding uh, that has been spent has been on mitigation. Right. So, Glade, in your, in your view, uh, one of the key issues at the COP27 was that inclusion of the loss and damage. What is this loss and damage and what exactly does it mean for Africa? As, uh, let me put it in perspective first. Uh, Africa has contributed uh, less than 4% on all the global emissions on, on uh, greenhouse uh, gases. So, but we are suffering the brunt of, of the consequences of, 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 of the greenhouses uh, due to our location and also to our economic model that's more dependent on agriculture uh, that's dependent on rainfall. So uh, the loss and damage is that, uh, what we're talking is that those damages that are caused uh, that are due to, to climate, who will bear uh, the responsibility of paying uh, those damages? And as you know now, in this region we have a drought that's go going almost on three years. So drought that we haven't seen for the last 78 years quite unusual, although it's quite difficult to attribute to climate change, definitely climate change has a lot to do with it. Right. So, 
Um, John, let me come back to you on this one because one of the issues that seems to be of uh, critical importance is that one of adaptation. And reports are putting the annual cost of adaptation in developing countries at about $300 billion by 2030, up from about $140 billion. Have there been any decisions made, though, on that long-standing issue of climate finance? A few decisions have been made. However, they are still in the realm of planning. It is basic that most of the funds will come from the public sector. In addition to that, the, there, is, there are efforts going on to get the organized private sector, the, multi, the multilateral development banks and the bilateral devel development banks to actually key into this process to increase their scope and their portfolio for dealing with climate impacts in Africa. Another thing also is the adaptation fund that was discussed, which Africans are saying should actually observe the principle of equity and common basis different responsibilities, as well as the respective capacities, looking particularly at the um, position of African, uh, yes, African countries and developing, which is less than that of the developed countries. Another critical thing is that there is discussion going on on making even the loans available at concessionary rates so that we can get a large chunk and use it to address most of these challenges. Apart from the large chunk, right. there is the idea that these loans should target a lot of the areas where Africa particularly is vulnerable, where it has resources, where it has capacity. For example, um, we have the African Development Bank. Right. Yes, among others, actually stepping up its role. We have the Global Economic Fund, right. Environmental Facility. All of them have been encouraged to take a position with regard to Africa. So what remains at the end of the day is to have a project scaling method that will make funds available for those projects that will actually reverse the most important climate impacts. All right. Um, so, you know, Guled, on that question of uh, financing, many promises were made at COP26, including meeting the $100 billion financing gap by developed countries. Has that progressed to more than just promises, or are we seeing more newer promises now? On, on the climate uh, financing, uh, actually, it's we go back to Paris, where the developing countries have agreed, uh, in principle, to pay the developing countries around $100 billion every year, and that hasn't happened. So uh, COP26, that was supposed to basically uh, conclude the agreements that were done on, uh, in, in the Paris Agreement, uh, actually it was agreed that $100, million, $100 billion was not enough, and it has to be increased uh, by 130. 
uh, what I have seen is some uh, creative accounting by some countries, uh, of including loans that have nothing to do with uh, uh, climate financing into, into the basket. So uh, our hope was that the, this COP will be uh, the COP of implementation where uh, agreement, solid agreements will, will be put in place, especially on adaptation and climate, climate financing. Right, unfortunately we are out of time here, John, but what would be your idea of success for Africa at COP27? The success Africa has recorded today is that Africa is speaking with one voice. It has set up a number of committees, the group of nations, the ministerial conference, the head of government. And we are bringing these issues to the front burner. Two of the priorities have been agreed upon. Loss and damage, which is being championed by San Diego, yes, then the agriculture. But we have not made success in the finance area. We have not made success in the technology area. We need funds. Even the multilateral development banks and the bilateral development banks need to come out more aggressively to provide the finance needed for these infrastructural projects that will actually curtail climate impact. They are not there yet. The developed countries need to transfer more technology to Africa. And we, we need to, like I said, the adaptability aspect. Right. We cannot overemphasize because there is a lot of crisis going on in Africa today. We must be able to curb them. Right. Once we curb them, we will come to a period of stability. Yes. You know. So that much I can say. We are on the path there. The issues are still being presented every year. They will still be debated until when the world body as a whole, the COP, now decides to um, approve it right. for so, implementation. Gulaid, your thoughts there. What would be your idea of success for Africa at COP27? The, the main success for Africa will be that the wording on the loss and damage it is strongly worded and there is a follow-up uh, and there is a mechanism of how funding can be uh, set up. There are now two options uh, on, 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 on how the funding can be done. One suggests that uh, by the end of 2024 a uh, mechanism will be put in place uh, and there will be some uh, uh, funding uh, organization within the UN. And the second one actually will hold uh, the funding mechanism till to 2023 and 2023. So for Africa, the success will be uh, loss of damage that, that's, uh, that comes up in, in the final uh, document uh, with a more strong, strong rewarding than it has been and more funding to adaptation. At the end of the day, uh, why Africa is more uh, uh, weaker on, on adaptation is that our institution and our economies are weaker. Our economies are built on uh, 
mostly agriculture, agriculture that depends on, on climate. That's why uh, a drought uh, terrorist disaster in some regions of Africa, while drought happens everywhere and it doesn't become a disaster. So we have to build our uh, capacities and move away from uh, relying uh, on agriculture that does depend on a climate. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for being a part of this discussion. But that's all we have time for this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to all our guests. Professor Lee White, Minister of Forests, Oceans, Environment and Climate Change of the Gabonese Republic. Guleid Atsan, Director of the IGAD Climate Prediction and Application Center. And John Ekoko, Climate and Environmental Expert. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation online through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. You can also catch the show on our YouTube playlist. So keep the conversation going and join us again next week for more Talk Africa. From me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi, until next time, it's goodbye. Welcome back. And that was uh, a segment on uh, the impact of uh, the United Nations uh, Climate uh, Summit that just recently concluded in the North African state of uh, Egypt. And uh, the question was, was this uh, Africa top? And, of course, they reviewed uh, many of the promises that had been made over the last two weeks and even prior to that, uh, extending back uh, for a decade or more. We'll take a break. Uh, we'll be back with more of our program uh, for uh, this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of Rotary Connection uh, from their last album, uh, entitled, um, that track was entitled, I Am the Black Gold of the Sun, and uh, right now we want to move into a news report uh, from Africa Matters, uh, dealing with the current situation in the Eastern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, among other issues. Let's listen in. Welcome everyone, I'm Yashni Padiachi and this is Africa Matters. Mediators urge warring parties to stop the fighting and start dialogue as the conflict intensifies between the Congolese army and M23 rebels in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In South Africa, we meet a group of pensioners who have been camping outside the Constitutional Court as they demand compensation for apartheid-era crimes. And as the World Cup kicks off, we look at how Qatar has adopted a novel therapy approach pioneered in Zimbabwe to help address mental health issues. The Democratic Republic of the Congo has witnessed one of the longest-running conflicts in the world. Now, the latest surge in fighting is between the Congolese Army and the March 23 movement, commonly referred to as M23. It's a mostly Congolese Tutsi group which gained global attention in 2012 after briefly capturing Goma in the east of the country. The United Nations and Congolese forces drove them out a year later. But the group took up arms again late last year after claiming Kinshasa had failed to honor a pledge to integrate them into the army. The army says they're now repelling attacks on multiple fronts as the group tries to edge closer to the city of Goma. Now, hundreds of civilians have been fleeing from the front lines to cities near the regional capital. The United Nations says only a tiny fraction of the six million people uprooted from their homes are able to return. And the numbers are rising, with nearly 200,000 people displaced since mid-October fleeing for their lives. It was the day before yesterday when I decided to flee my home because of the detonations. There were several detonations. I decided this because I didn't want to die in the village. The M23 attacked us the day before yesterday, and that's how we immediately made the decision to flee. I even left my wife and children, and I didn't even take clothes. I don't have food here. Hunger will kill us. More than 120 armed groups are active in eastern Congo. Civilians have accused the UN's 16,000-strong peacekeeping mission, known as MONUSCO, of failing to protect them and secure the regions since they were deployed in 2000. In June, the seven member states of the East African community agreed to deploy a regional force for the first time to help combat the armed groups. It has a six-month renewable mandate, but how will it all work? The Congolese Armed Forces have overall command of operations and the East Africa Regional Force. The Ugandan soldiers are to target the Allied Democratic Forces, or ADF, a Ugandan rebel coalition whose biggest faction has sworn allegiance to Daesh in North Kivu and Ituri. The Kenyan troops will pursue other rebels in North Kivu, where it already has soldiers as part of the UN peacekeeping mission. The Tanzanian and Burundian troops are to operate in South Kivu. The Burundian contingent, which was the first to deploy in mid-August, will continue battling the RED Tabara militia in the area. And a small contingent of South Sudanese are to fight the remnants of the Lord's Resistance Army in Hautiule. 
Kenyan troops deployed under the banner of a regional bloc have arrived in Goma. The East Africa Force commander insisted that diplomacy is also needed in trying to find a long-term solution for Eastern Congo. The deployment comes just days ahead of planned talks set to take place in Kenya's capital, Nairobi. War does not necessarily bring peace. You have to pursue diplomacy. The second on that track, and is very critical for you to note, is the issue of disarmament and demobilization, not only targeting M23, because we seem our focus to be on M23. We have over 120 armed groups within DRC, and they have instigated significant degree of insecurity. If these two tracks fail, then we will automatically transit to the third track, that is military action. I would like to reassure you that the Loyalist forces are doing very well on the ground and are containing the enemy at the heights of Kabumba. However, I ask you to remain vigilant and resist the enemy. Let's hear more from Michael Shibangu. He's a DRC political affairs analyst and joins me from Leicester in the UK. Michael, it's good to have you on Africa Matters. Uh, just talk us through why we're now seeing this reemergence of M23 at this time. Well, the M23 is a group that uh, came, which is a splitting group from the CNDP. It's NDP, which signed an agreement with the Congolese government in uh, 2000. And, nine, and the group claims that the government has not honored its pledge, its agreement, and it names itself the, the, the M23, which is the movement for the uh, agreement, which wants the government to honor the agreement. But if you look at it as well, people obviously are looking, are seeing the hands of Rwanda behind this movement, uh, and, and, and they have emerged at a, time, at a very crucial time where uh, Felix Sekedi, the president of the DRC, seems to be having problems with uh, with uh, Paul Kagame. And of course, Rwanda has denied any involvement with the M23 group on this. Uh, but Michael, how effective do you think this regional force that we've seen deployed from the East African community, how effective do you think they'll be? I, I really doubt that they will be very effective, especially when we've just heard what the commander of particularly the Kenyan force has to say. They appear to be an interposition force, a force that will come and, and, and be between the far DC, which is the Congolese army, and the M23. And the, the, the force also, the, the problem with the Eastern African community is that some of the countries in that community are accused of backing the M23. So this makes the dynamic a little bit more difficult because um, they, it can't be judged at the same time they want to be a, a party. So if, if, the, if the Congolese people are a little bit wary and they were not reassured because they thought that the forces were coming to fight the M23, but they realized that it might not be the case and people are quite disappointed. And that all then plays into these talks that are going to be happening in Nairobi. What do you think needs to happen at this discussion to find a solution or an end to this conflict as you've got the Kenyan forces going in, but the leaders at the same time are trying to broker a diplomatic uh, solution to all of this? Absolutely. It's really important that they get to the bottom of this. As you have mentioned in the draft, this is not the first time. They have signed agreement over and over again. There's been time when they went, they negotiated, 
and they had deals, and afterwards, they become again, they say the deal were not respected. It's really important that they look at the causes of this issue, which is particularly, uh, on one hand, you have the involvement of Rwanda, which is supporting this government, uh, those uh, rebels, and the other, on the other hand, you have a weak Congolese government that is not doing enough to protect its own country. And this situation, if they don't go to the coast, then you'll end up with a situation where they sign an agreement, and after a few months, they say the agreement was not respected. And we have another word. It's been um, a vicious circle. So they, they keep doing that, and they sign, they talk, and after they talk, whoa, they talk. So if the community does not address the, the issue, the real issue, they have to find out what is going on between Rwanda and Congo. Why is Rwanda supporting and continue to support those groups? Although it denies it, but the UN group of experts seems to also support the idea that, that they are behind, that they have to go to get to the bottom of this, this situation. If Rwanda is supporting M23 as they've been accused of doing so, what benefit is it to Rwanda and to their government to do this? Some people will say that uh, if you look at the history of Congo since 1996 to today, uh, the Rwanda has repeatedly supported the uh, rebel movement in DRC, and those groups, they've also been accusing of looting DRC. So a weak DRC is a DRC that can easily be looted because DRC happens to have a lot of mining resources, and when there's instability, it's much easier to smuggle those resources. Yeah, the mapping report of the UN, which has catalogued numerous cases of uh, not only uh, human rights violations, but also looting. So there's an economic dimension that will have to be, will need to be looked at as well. You have DRC, a weak country, but that has so many resources, and they have neighbors that are exploiting that weaknesses for their own benefits. Yeah, of course, if, if DRC was just looking at wealth alone in terms of mineral resources, they should be one of the wealthiest in, in Africa. But of course, while this, this fighting is happening, as you mentioned, it's the ordinary civilians in that country really feeling it the most. So many are now internally displaced, and yeah. the fighting means that aid, uh, internal aid and international aid can't reach them. What's, what's the bigger long-term impact for people in this region of, of the DRC? Well, you have, and then the subtle things, this thing has been going on since for the past 26 years. So those wars caused people to flee. They are, for example, yesterday we saw family members, people running, and they, they lost their children whilst they were running. So you have families that have broken up. You have people, livelihood, that are destroyed. And, and you have people who have been killed, innocent people, women, children, killed. They have to flee. And when the bombs fall, the bomb will not distinguish whether this person is a, is a soldier or a civilian. And then the people die just like that, needlessly. This war could be avoided. But the, 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 uh, when you look at all these things, you see how much people have suffered. And for 26 years, 26 years of war, 26 years of rape, violence, all sorts of atrocity, uh, crimes against humanity, but it keeps going on. So it will stop for a while and it will stop. And then uh, it, 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 this has to stop. This has to stop. People are suffering so much and they, they don't know who to turn to. They don't know whether they can turn to the UN. The UN is not doing much. The Congolese government is not doing much. They're so abandoned. I feel abandoned. And why is the UN not doing enough? Why is there not more uh, support, more outrage from the international community? And that's the question many Congolese people are asking themselves. They say, look, we are seeing a war, for example, in Ukraine, and we see how much the international community is involved in that war. But in the, when it comes to Congo, there seems to be some sort of, they're not really that committed or interested. So you have 
people, millions of people who have died because of this war, this recurring war. It's always in the east of Congo. They fight, they kill, they loot, and the international committee just doesn't do much. You have the UN forces there, but as people are fighting, what are the UN soldiers doing now? What are they doing to protect the people? They have a mandate that allows them to protect the population. But as you have noticed, it's the population that are paying the heaviest price in this war. And sadly, that is usually the situation, just ordinary people paying the heaviest price. Michael Shibangu, really good to talk to you and get your take on this, speaking to us there from Leicester. Thanks, Michael. Still to come here on Africa Matters, a new initiative led by the NGO TechLift Africa aims to close the gap by providing IT skills to kids in rural Kenya. I'm in Sepeng Mutima and I'll tell you how victims of apartheid in South Africa are sleeping out at the Constitutional Court, still seeking reparations. We go to South Africa now, where a group of about 150 pensioners is staging a sleepout at the country's Constitutional Court. They say they're victims of apartheid and have yet to receive the reparations they're owed. It's the second time this year they've staged this kind of protest, and they say they will not leave until the matter is resolved. Nsipeng Motema brings us their story from Johannesburg. Pay up, President Cyril Ramaphosa. That's the chant at the doors of South Africa's Constitutional Court. It's coming from members of the Kulumani Kalela campaign, who say they are direct victims of apartheid but never received reparations for their suffering or got only a portion. And they are here to demand what's due to them. The group consists of about 150 people, most of whom are pensioners, with others representing their late parents. They have been staging a sleep-out protest here for weeks. We are staying out here because we know that this court is there to protect the rights of the citizens. People's rights were violated here in South Africa, but now they are indoors going about their daily business and they are ignoring us victims. Why? Danisile Mabanga says she was six years old when her family was forcefully removed from their home as part of the then government's racist policies of segregation. Her younger brother was later killed by security agents. The 64-year-old says her mother, who has since passed away, was found to be eligible for reparations but never received the education, health and housing benefits owed to the family. In 1995, at the dawn of democracy, the Government of National Unity established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or the TRC. It was tasked with holding public hearings to uncover the human rights abuses committed from the years 1960 to 1994. The TRC also had a mandate to identify victims for reparations and to recommend prosecution or grant amnesty to the perpetrators of the brutal system. The process concluded in 2003 and identified 22,000 individuals and their families who should get compensation. The Ministry of Justice and Correctional Services is overseeing the presidential fund which was set up to manage those payouts. It controls almost $100 million. Crispin Peary is the Ministry of Justice spokesperson and has been engaging with the protesters outside of the country's highest court. He says in order to deliver what was allocated under the TRC, 
protesters first need to provide their full details to validate their identities and compensation claims. If they do not give us the information we require, we cannot unilaterally give people money, for instance, or unilaterally decide to intervene in a particular way for, without us understanding what those people are about, what the nature of the problem is there. Leaders of the Kulumani Kalela campaign say they are compiling that information, but it's a difficult task since there's around 100,000 people across the country whose cause they are fighting for. For them, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process was deeply flawed. They ask, how could the TRC close its intake after identifying only 22,000 people as victims of apartheid when millions of South Africans suffered under the brutal system. Africa Matters, Johannesburg. The United Nations says there are now 8 billion people in the world. Nigeria is home to 216 million people and it's projected to become the fourth most populous country globally after India, China and the United States by 2050. For residents of Lagos, traffic congestion in Africa's largest city is a daily nightmare. But to help relieve its citizens, state officials are working on a mega-project, as soon as Emre reports. Ayo Babatunde hops into his Danpo, ready to battle another day of traffic. As he navigates the chaos of Lagos, his passengers huddle in the back, patiently riding out their hours-long commute to work. Say that uh, is supposed to be okay than this. All this traffic that we used to face up and down, we know that we're not supposed to be face back. They say they do everything um, accordingly the way they're supposed to do it. That's why the lady is angry. They wait from his bed now. They rush. They have to rush to work and rush to home again. All the time face traffic, going and coming back home. Ayo's passengers are quick to express their frustration about what they have to endure every day. Lagos does not have a single metro line. Its population relies on informal transport to get around, like Ayo's small Danfo, and private boats that carry passengers across the lagoon that runs through the city. Fully aware of the inefficient transport infrastructure, the city is pushing forward with a mega project. Lagos is a congested city, um, so we have to obviously find alternatives, um, which is why the state government has been carrying out sustainable development of the water transportation system, but not in isolation, um, as a part of a multimodal transport system, which sees the road transport and also the rail transport come on board as well. The state is drawing up plans for a mass transit system and opening its first railway line next year. But providing sufficient transport for a growing city of 20 million people is no small order. It requires massive amounts of funding, planning and preparation. And it starts with knowing the needs of the people. Lagos population is a major challenge. Even knowing the population is a major challenge. Now, even if when we know the population, we really need to work and make, it, make sure that we can move people around within the population. And now the government is trying their best to make sure that it's providing enough infrastructure to take care of the population. But the major issue or major challenge is that there are issues with implementation. It's really funding. But if they get it right, 
there is going to be a major game changer. Researchers at the University of Toronto say Lagos could become the world's largest city by the 22nd century. But if it wants to stay on track, it needs to get going. Yunusemre, Africa Matters. And in Kenya, students in rural areas are often left behind in terms of education and especially in IT skills. That's compared to their counterparts in the rest of the world. But a new program led by the NGO TechLift Africa is hoping to change all that. Shoaib Hassan has the story. Nelly Chiboy says it was her personal experiences as a student in rural Kenya that inspired TechLift Africa. The NGO has made teaching IT skills possible for students in remote parts of the country. So we collect computer donations from companies and institutions. We import them into Kenya. We have a refurbishment center here where we work the computers, install our own custom operating system, and then we deploy into schools. We also partner with youth in the community that we train uh, to run our classes. So our classes are part of the school curriculum. The flagship is the Zawadi Yetu Academy in Mogotia, Baringa County in eastern Kenya. We've been teaching kids how to develop uh, websites and uh, how they can uh, add some goodies on their websites like uh, CSS, uh, images, videos and uh, audios. Uh, this is something that will help kids uh, know how they, how they can brand themselves online and how they can uh, do business online because that's where the world is heading. It's made the children here more confident and eager to learn more. In this class I've been taught how to use Visual Studio Code to make my own website using HTML and CSS. Then I've been taught about OpenShop and about NASA to make my own rocket when I grow up. So I hope this class will help me in my future to be an IT The program currently operates in 13 schools across Kenya, teaching 5,000 students between the ages of 4 and 12 years. Nelly Chiboy says her dream is to expand the model across the region and enable African students to be as good with digital skills as those anywhere else in the world. Shoaib Hassan, Africa Matters. In Zimbabwe, a unique but simple method is being implemented to combat mental health problems. Using a park bench, the therapy is proving vital in a country which has less than 700 trained mental health professionals for a total population of 16 million. The method has now been adopted by the World Health Organization and is being showcased at this year's Qatar World Cup. Talha Duman reports. It could be any park bench in Zimbabwe or even anywhere in the world. But the bench is a lifeline as health workers called grandmothers here sit down with patients for a friendly chat. The Chibanda Friendship Bench is named after the doctor who developed the treatment. Because the mission of the Friendship Bench, which has always been my mission, is to take people out of depression. But our big ambitious uh, vision is to have a friendship bench like this within walking distance everywhere, not only in Zimbabwe, the whole world. It's not just the environment. The free service has made treatment more accessible. 
Dr. Chibanda says he came up with the idea after a patient committed suicide as she couldn't afford to pay the $15 fare to the hospital. A lot of people are getting help here. The old and the young come here with their problems. We are also helping the young who are struggling with the drug abuse. Mental health problems have increased amid decades of economic hardship and deepening poverty in Zimbabwe. A lack of facilities compounded the problem, but the friendship bench has been making a big impact for the last 16 years. 160,000 patients have sought treatment this way in the past two years, and the method has been adopted by the U.S., Kenya, Malawi, and Jordan. It's now being showcased at the Qatar World Cup to raise mental health awareness. So at the World Cup, there will be 32 benches representing the competing teams. Uh, and this is a symbolic way of really illustrating the need for all of us, not only people attending the World Cup and not only the, the participating teams, but all human beings to find a way of connecting with each other. A simple homegrown solution in Zimbabwe that's now being used to help change lives for the better across the world. Talha Duman, Africa Matters. This week we explore Springbok, a city in South Africa's Northern Cape province. The city shares its name with the national animal and the country's World Cup winning rugby team. Let's take a closer look. And that's our show this week. It would be great if you shared your thoughts with us about the stories you've seen on this episode or anything you'd like us to cover. You can use the hashtag Africa Matters on Twitter. And to watch this episode again, you can find us on YouTube. It was great seeing you. Until the next time, take care. Bye-bye. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Africa Matters uh, discussing a number of uh, issues uh, facing the African continent and the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the Republic of South Africa, in the Republic of Zimbabwe, among others. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal. Only you.
A few days ago, the African National Congress confirmed that it has reached the threshold for the National Conference to go ahead as planned in December. On Tuesday this week, we'll know for sure if uh, former Health Minister Israel Mkhize will take on President Sir Ramaphosa for the top post and who else is nominated uh, for that top six. The ANC expects 4,200 voting delegates to attend the conference from the 16th to the 20th of December. Well, tonight, Newsroom Africa officially kicks off our coverage of the upcoming conference and uh, to do that, we are joined in studio now by NEC uh, member for the African National Congress, uh, Lindy Wezulu. Good evening, good to have you and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much, Peggy Swayo. In course, in course. If I may say that. By your course, Abandi, but you have Bagajal. You have Bagajal. You have Bagajal. But a very good evening to you and a good evening to your viewers. Thank you for the opportunity. Let's start with what we've just watched. Um, from, from what we are seeing, and uh, you'll tell us how rife and how broadly spread this issue is, the, the problems still persist. Um, manipulation of uh, uh, branch processes, money from what we're hearing uh, from others is still a big factor. Uh, and I don't know to what extent is misrepresentation or still uh, pretty much a big factor on this build-up uh, towards uh, the, the conference. Is ANC in ICU? No, we're not about to be in the ICU. We'll never be in the ICU as long as the African National Congress continues to have 
cadres who do the right thing by the African National Congress and do the right thing by the people. However, that does not exclude the fact that we do have those, like you see the accusations that are being leveled now. Uh, we still do have some people who always take a chance. And it's nothing new, by the way, in the African National Congress. Some people will take a chance because they join the African National Congress for other reasons either than what the African National Congress stands for. That's exactly what the report of the Veterans League said, isn't mm. it, in the 54th conference, saying there are people who are not supportive of the ANC policies, who are not supportive of whatever mission that you're on. They're really in the ANC to, 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 to gain power and access to the, to the resources. Why have you failed to get rid of them? Look, the ANC has got its own democratic processes, and what we need to do is to re-look into those processes, strengthen them in such a way that it weeds out those kind of uh, people, I won't even call them cadres, those kind of people who deliberately come in and say, I want to be in there because I'm going to be a councillor, I'm going to be a mayor, I'm going to be a minister, I'm going to be all those things. And by the way, being all those things that uh, some uh, think they want to be, it does happen. I'm sitting here, you're sitting in front of a, a minister myself. But the bottom line is, how did I get to where I am? And what were the due processes of the ANC that en ensured that throughout the years that I'm in the African National Congress, I do my best to do the right thing? So it's a new space for the African National Congress. Some people might say it's 28 years. Believe me, 28 years or 30 years of a party that was in the liberation struggle, that had to prepare itself within a short space of time and find itself here. The biggest challenge for the ANC was for it to open floodgates, yeah. where now when you join the ANC, some people don't even wait at the door to get in. They come and kick the door and want to sit by the table. This is what the African National Congress has to deal with in the long term. Hence, the ANC itself started with the process of renewal, with the, the process of rebuilding itself. My view is that it's not going to be a short process because we allowed too many to come in who came in not with the purpose that we know of, of Winima Tigizela Mandela, of Masisulu, of Oar Tambo, and the rest of the cadres actually who sacrificed for us to be where we are. It's a journey, but it is a journey that must also take into consideration that there's a country to run. Yeah. That must take into consideration that people have had confidence in this organization. And if that confi confidence keeps on being chipped, it's bad for the organization, but I also believe it's bad for the country. Yeah. Would you say the renewal and reengineering program has failed? generally with this administration. Maybe it has failed with other leadership as well in, in, in the previous administration, but with this particular leadership, do you think you, you have failed to, to renew and re-engineer the party? Because from what we're hearing, divisions are still pretty much uh, the, the, the order of the day. Uh, factions are still pretty much the order of the day uh, within, within the party. I don't think it has failed. I think it has not had uh, the type of teeth it needed to have in order for us to make sure that when decisions are being made, those decisions are implemented. And those also that are found to be on the wrong side of the African National Congress, we don't dilly-dally 
about making the decision what needs to be done. Look, the ANC has got a very strong uh, institution. Yeah. Um, and I think the ANC has also got a very strong constitution. Hence, South Africa has got a, a strong constitution. But to have a good constitution, and by the way, some of the members who are in there, I don't even know whether they've bothered to really take time to study what that constitution says and what the constitution says in particular yeah. with regard to our own behavior, in particular with regard uh, to how we handle ourselves, yeah. but how we manage... Even at any level, I mean, Nombula uh, Mkonyane says there are some in the NEC that she honestly believes they, they didn't read the constitution of the ANC. They don't even know why they are there. You see, that's because... Remember I said earlier on, we opened the floodgates and we did not do what used to happen in the past. You know, in the past to be a member of the ANC was not just coming in and, and, and getting membership and paying 12 rands or buying membership. It was very strict, strict from a branch level. Today you've got people who sit in leadership even in the branches who hardly even know each other. Most of the time, leaders of the African National Congress, they normally know each other. Uh, because they've, they've, they've struggled together, but never mind the struggle, because I don't want people to take us back to say, yeah, you think the only people who are supposed to be members are those who struggled. The bottom line is that at a branch level, there are certain things that are in the constitution of what people should do. I'm not talking about just leaders yeah. of the ANC. I'm talking about general branch members. Yeah. Branch members are supposed to appreciate and understand the challenges of the people around yeah. them. Yeah. Branch members are supposed to be the ones that go out to the community and talk about the African National Congress. But now today you have those who are just there. They know that they are members of the ANC because they were able to pay the 12 rand and they got in there. That's why I'm saying some came, just kicked the door and went in and sat at the table. Yeah. There's a process that we need to change. How do you become a member of the African National Congress? Yeah. And let me tell you, Tabo, when some of us joined the African National Congress, we had to write your biography, not once, not twice not three times, because the system at the time of the African National Congress had to be strict, had to be tight, because we were infiltrated also at the time. Now, if we think we're not infiltrated today, I personally think there's a problem there. We are infiltrated by those who come in and then do the things that they are doing. Yeah. Now you see uh, in, in, in the Free State, you were just showing um, uh, the clip there, uh, where there are accusations back and forth. It's nothing new. One of the things that I think is good, though, is the fact that we're beginning to use a system that makes it difficult for people to do mm -hmm. that. But, however, if you have sources in your midst, yeah. then they will always look for ways and means of breaking the system. It, it seems, though, according to some uh, members uh, and, 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 and uh, ex-official members, the biggest source in the party right now is the one who's running the party. For example, we hear... Uh, the former president speaking in, 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 in Cape Town, saying that the, the MKMVA came to him and reported that they wrote a letter to the suspended Secretary General Isma Khashoggi to investigate whether President Ramaphosa was not a member of the CIA. I mean, as an NEC member, has, has that conversation ever come no, to you? No, not that kind of conversation. And let me also tell you, in the ANC and in the NEC, one would not expect things that come through the side door without being processed. 
the African National Congress and the National Executive Committee in particular has got specific committees that deal with different things. They've got the officials, but also we've got the National Working uh, uh, Committee. Yeah. So if there are people who have a, a feeling or they know or they can prove that somebody is a Tsotsi, they actually have structures where they can No, I'm asking you precisely because you sit in the peace and stability. But there you? hasn't been any... So what do you guys talk no, about in that committee? I no. mean, when you hear these things, they don't no, say those, those things. Those things have to be brought. If there's something like that, it has to be brought formally, Tabo. It cannot be a sideshow discussion. It has to be brought, and if there are people who wrote a letter, like you say, MKMVA wrote a letter, I'm not aware of that letter. Maybe the officials did receive the letter. If the officials received such a letter, it's the responsibility of the officials to then process that letter. What is processing the letter is about talking about it. It's correspondence that has arrived on the table of either the SGOs or somebody's office, and it's put on the table, and what normally happens that they would talk about it and then they would agree what steps they need to take, what action needs to be taken, which committee needs to deal with it. Then they'll have to take it to the NWC and the NWC will then have to bring it to the National Executive yeah. Committee. Is it, is it possible then, uh, for example, that the suspended uh, Secretary General Ace Mahashula could have received the letter but was suspended before he could process it? Well, it's, it's possible. I, would, I wouldn't say it's not possible. It's possible because one of the things that I personally uh, believe in that the ANC as an organization we need to do, we need to be agile in dealing with some of the challenges and don't let them fester until they become a problem where even within the National Executive Committee yeah. itself, you have people who are saying, well, you act fast when it's this faction, you don't act fast when, when it's that. For me, it's about uh, strengthening your institutions. We can't be saying as the ANC, we strengthen the institutions of governance yeah. in government, and we don't do that in the African National Congress. So some of us, we could, we could, we could be a fly in the wall, for example, to sit and say, when you guys are gathered there, is there anybody who comes up and say, President Ramaphosa, you are, you, are, you are infiltrating the party, you are, you are part of the CIA. Does it come up? Are people afraid to raise it? What, what, what is, why is it that it happens, as you put it, on, on the side doors and becomes a side Well, show? they shouldn't be afraid of it, in my view, because if you've got the facts and if you've got the truth and you see that anything like that could be detrimental to your organization, you know what is uh, the right thing to do. The organization has got those structures, and I've been in a member of the National Executive Committee, and in particular, this uh, uh, term that is going to be ending very soon. I haven't, not at any of the meetings, heard of any letter that was brought by anybody to that effect. I'm not aware of that. And the issue now of U.S. dollars being said to have been found is alleged, was being investigated in the Madras, in the President's farm and others of course connecting the dots saying well CIA agent uh, dollars in your matras clearly there's some US uh, uh, operative somewhere that is giving you money. Look uh, it's, it's very difficult to start bringing those issues of whether a person is, a, is an agent of the CIA or anything of that sort. My view is that if people have got a case to put on the table about that, let them not talk about it on the side. Let them bring it to the table. Let it be open discussion at the National Executive Committee. And besides, I think if there's something like that, they know that there's Peace and Stability uh, Subcommittee of the NEC, that will be able to take that. Investigations need to be done 
by the African NISA Congress because I think sometimes it's very dangerous yeah. to be throwing um, a, a, a narratives around without putting the facts on the table. Put the facts on the table and we in the African NISA Congress have got the responsibility to go through it, get the report and, and, and deal with it properly. Otherwise we'll be uh, searching for things without uh, proper uh, uh, facts that are put on the table. What happens when the party who should be giving you then the information is not necessarily coming forward? And the president has been asked several times by all of us in the media, but it seems has been asked by the party as well to say, come clean on this Palapala matter. What actually happened? There are due processes within the African National Congress itself, and as you are aware, the whole Palapala story also was given to the relevant committee, and that's a good thing about the ANC that we do have committees that need to take these things. Remember what I said earlier on, that I personally think that we need to make sure that we speed up on these processes in mm. order for us to avoid talks on the uh, sideshow. We must be agile about it. Mm. And the committee, uh, the, the, the integrity uh, committee, there is also an issue that they've been raising as, yeah. a, as a committee that, you know, we don't, they don't have enough capacity. They need to be capacitated because if they have to do that kind of work, they need to go to places, they need to call people for interviews, they need to do that. And the issue is that they are not capacitated enough. Yes. And remember that they are a new committee. They're not necessarily a, a, an old committee like all the other subcommittees. Yes. And they are made out of people who in our view, have integrity. They are older generation. They are people who have defended this organization. They are people who I know would not buy our face, would not want to do things because they want to be on my side yeah. uh, or the other. So you, you so are not particularly disappointed that this final NEC meeting that they came and they said, we still don't have a report. When you've been promised all along to say, no, they are looking at it, and you said, okay, No, they do it. have a report. Come, they, come, they, come no, and, and, and Let's correct that. They yeah. do have the report. They do have the report, and they have to come and present the report themselves because it's their report. So why didn't they show up? I don't think they were invited to this meeting. I don't think they were invited to this meeting. We still have one more meeting, by the way. <laughs> so, That's incredible because yeah. I mean, we've been, we were hearing that all along, that that, the, that final meeting, they will come, they'll be there. Uh, at least what we're hearing from uh, uh, those who are communicating with us at that point in time, that this is what they'll be presenting. And it, 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 was, it was a surprise that they, they didn't show up to present. I think it is good uh, for, for all of us, including yourselves, that when you, you get issues uh, from other people, you must ask what is the agenda of the African National Congress. And in many instances, when we go to the NEC meeting, we are given the agenda as members of the National Executive Committee, but it's not the agenda that's, that's uh, thrown around. So I know that um, they, they have the report. It's a fact. They do have the report. Right. But the fact of the matter is that the report can't be presented by anybody else either than themselves because let's, it's their report. Let's take a break. We'll continue in a moment uh, with uh, more. Zindia Zulu-Stegnas, member of the NEC of the African National Congress, to reflect further on what they've been able to achieve as this particular uh, NEC of the ANC. Stay with us. Back with you live tonight. Turn and Focus Journey to Nazareth uh, begins in earnest here on the channel and you will be getting this every single day, building up uh, to the uh, elective conference of the ANC. Expected to take place around the 16th of December right up until the 20th. Still with us in the studio now, NEC member uh, Lindiwe Zulu. And uh, we are, of course, uh, looking at uh, 
what's been coming out? I mean, one of the things is, of course, we know the NEC is the highest decision-making body of the African National Congress, a collective, right? Uh, that this has been the weakest. Would you agree with that? No, I wouldn't agree with it, and I'll tell you why I don't agree with it. The African National Congress and all NEC ever since 1994, each one of those five-year periods, they would tell you of the challenges that were faced by each of the five years. What I think is a problem now is the fact that the challenges within the African National Congress are much deeper and much uh, despairing, if I can use that word, than maybe it would have been 20 years ago. The challenges that face the ANC today from a point of view of discipline within the members of the ANC themselves, of consistency in the decisions that are made, in the implementation of those decisions that are made, but also we are operating in a very difficult environment now, globally and also internally. Our own internal politics, and when I talk about our internal politics, I'm talking about the South African politics across the board mm. with all the different political parties and the fight, of course, to get into power and so. Uh, if you go back to the African National Congress in the early 90s uh, or maybe immediately after 1994, the environment of South Africa was very different. It had its own challenges, obviously, because at the time we needed to transform the administration at that time and create one country. But the people at that time also still believed in the African National Congress a lot because they were just coming out of apartheid. Now, fast forward to today, some people have been uh, are happy because maybe houses they got, uh, education has been better for them, health has been better for them. But the more there's global challenge, there's more there's economic challenges, the more there is a demand on the African National Congress, the more the leadership of any given moment will have to do things a little bit in a different way. So this leadership, it might have continued in the same way because the environment we're coming out from might have been not as challenging as it is now. But if you look also from a governance point of view, yeah. government from 1994 to probably 15 years later to 20 years later, a whole lot of things started changing. That also includes the issue of corruption. Yeah. Uh, it started rearing its head. And we started seeing even our own comrades beginning to think maybe that's the best way of getting money instead of waiting uh, for due processes. Those who are working, they work and they are honest in their work. So I wouldn't say it is a weak leadership. I would say that it is a leadership that is faced with different challenges that might have not been read properly yeah. in order for us so, to be so able to make the right it's, decision. It's not a case of, um, again, as you put it, they're faced with challenges that they've got no solutions to. So there's a dust of, of ideas. For example, peace and stability, let's stay there. What we have been seeing in the country, um, eight women were raped at a, a mining dump. Uh, each week, at least in the, for the past two weeks, we've been hearing of six people being killed uh, in, 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 in East London. We, we, we're hearing of, of children being kidnapped and uh, mauled and mutilated. We, 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 we're just seeing a state of crime gradually deteriorating. You've got a peace and stability uh, committee. What programs and ideas are you coming up with there? 
Look, uh, it's, it's one thing to have the good uh, decisions at the Peace and Stability Committee about focusing on crime. By the way, that very same committee, one of the things that it spoke to quite a while back was to say that we need to focus on crime because the impact on crime, not only in terms of the economy, but just on the citizens, is becoming uh, too much. And therefore, the directive to government, because the ANC can do one thing, to take the right decisions, but direct government to be able to then make sure that, one, the policies, two, the principles, the action plans that are there are action plans that are much more effective. So it's more about uh, the ANC monitoring and evaluating the performance of those of us who are in government when it comes to issues like peace and stability or any other issue. What I think maybe we might say is the ANC needs to strengthen its own monitoring and evaluation so that Alindi Wezulu must be much more accountable to the ANC than accountable to anybody else because the ANC is the one that sends you there. Of mm. course, the president, ultimately the president, is the president that has to make sure that I perform yeah. because I sign a performance agreement with the president. But when all is said and done, the president is the president of the ANC. I am a member of the ANC. So my organization must really hold me uh, accountable much more than it is happening at yeah. the moment. Uh, when you sit in that committee, I mean, basically it's there. Mm. Uh, you are there. Uh, it's being chaired by, by Tony Ngeni. Is there anybody who says to him, as the representative of the ANC in government, you are failing. What, what is happening? What, what, what programs are in place? How are you dealing with the crime situation? Yes, absolutely. When we're sitting in that meeting, in a, you, you can imagine for me, I'm a minister of uh, social development, and these issues of violence against women and children, I mean, the painful story that came out of the Eastern Cape, uh, right now, it's something that we have to deal with because it means as a department, social workers have to go and deal with the families. The police have to be the first one to go and be confronted with that gruesome uh, 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 scene that they have to get. So the discussion about strengthening our implementation in government arises and the, the minister, it's just that I don't necessarily sit all the time in those committees because I also chair the International Relations yes, yes, yes. Uh, Subcommittee. So sometimes you find that I'm unable because the times are the same. But yes, issues have been raised by members of the National Executive Committee and indicated that they are completely and utterly unhappy with the crime uh, 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 in South Africa and the impact of it to our communities but also the impact globally. People look at us and think that we are just a, a, a nation that butchers its own women and, and old children. Those issues are raised very strongly at that committee. But again, I go back to the fact that there can be, the committee can strongly raise those issues. It is government, the president in government, the minister in government, all of us in cabinet that have to make sure that we implement those sentiments uh, those decisions, but also we must listen to the sentiments because members of that committee are not all uh, ministers. Some of them are just comrades. Welcome back. And uh, that was an interview, extensive interview uh, with uh, ANC National Executive Committee member Lindiway Zulu, who is also Minister of uh, Social Welfare and Development uh, in the Republic of South Africa, representing the uh, ruling African National Congress Party. That's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, November 20th, uh, 2022.
We've been broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access uh, to this program, just go to our website, uh, and that is at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll be closing out uh, with uh, the music of uh, Hank Mobley, uh, the Hank Mobley Quintet with Cedar Walton from the album entitled Breakthrough. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.